This is the Homestead Journey Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the pursuit of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and sustainability. This is episode number 103 of the Homestead Journey Podcast. Welcome, everyone. My name is Brian. I am coming to you from 3B Farm and Homestead here in beautiful upstate New York. And folks, it has been a very busy two weeks here on the Homestead. As you may remember from last week's episode, because I was out of town for the charcuterie intensive class that I went to over in Massachusetts, well, there was no Homestead happenings, but there were Homestead happenings. So let's dive right into that because we have a great charting the course coming up as I chat with Jack Polner of the Mindful Homestead about last week's course. Over the last couple of weeks, a lot of things have been taking place here on the homestead. And certainly a lot of that does go back to food preservation because it is, of course, that time of the year as we are starting to wind down the garden. And so there's just been a lot of canning and fermenting and food preservation that's been going on. Last week, I actually made up some of my pepper relish. I want to call it world famous pepper relish, but that's probably a bit of an overstatement, (laughs) but there is this pepper relish recipe that I have found that I absolutely love. And usually I make it by doing a 50, 50 mix of volcano and mariachi peppers. But this year, my harvest of both of those peppers was a little bit on the light side. So I mixed in a few uh, peppers of other varieties as well. But at the end of the day, the overall product still came out very, very good. And I was very pleased with, and in fact, I took some of it over to Jack and I took some to the charcuterie intensive. And in both instances, people enjoyed it, um, or at least they said they did. So uh, (laughs) anyhow, uh, it's one of those, uh, it's one of those things that I really do enjoy making. And more than that, I enjoy eating it uh, on some bratwurst or some uh, hot dogs. It is just absolutely so good. So good. Uh, very good stuff. And so I made some of that. I did wrap up the fermentation that I had going on with the, um, with the kohlrabi sauerkraut that I was making. And uh, so I've popped those into the fridge and overall I was very happy with it. I wouldn't say that I like kohlrabi kraut better than I like cabbage kraut. I think I like the cabbage better. But there is a certain, I would call it sweetness maybe, to the kohlrabi kraut that I did find pleasing. And so I've got that in the fridge and that will slow down the fermentation process and allow us to enjoy it uh, over the next few weeks and maybe even a couple of months. So some of the other food preservation things that we've had going on, I dug potatoes, our Irish potatoes yesterday, and we really did get a a very good harvest. I was overall happy with it. I think I could have done better if I would have stayed up uh, on top of adding the hay to it. I have the potatoes in the Ruth stout bed, and I just didn't really stay on top of adding hay to it like I should have. So I think my production was a little bit uh, stunted as a result, but overall, uh, all things considered, the amount of rain and so forth, very, very happy with the harvest. And I did post pictures of it to Instagram and Facebook. So if you don't follow us there, 
definitely check us out. Uh, that will keep you up to date with all that we've got going on here on the homestead. And then today, I actually spent uh, quite a bit of time doing up tomatoes. As you may recall, I've been putting the tomatoes in the freezer. And so on Friday evening, I took out some of the tomatoes from one of the freezers, defrosted them. And then yesterday evening, I ran those through the squeeze And that really does a great job of taking the skins and the seeds out. And as you may recall, one of the reasons why I like putting the tomatoes in the freezer is that when you defrost them, a lot of the water is released uh, right away, just through the, the process of unthawing. And so I poured that off and then I went ahead and took those tomatoes and I ran them through the squeeze and all the squeeze off. If you're not familiar with it, it's a, it's a food mill. Uh, it has a hopper and it has a strainer with an auger inside of it. It's one that my grandparents had and I inherited and I have no idea how old it is. I'd really, really love to know how old that uh, squeeze is and how many years it's been in use but it's really great for making tomato sauce and it's really great for making applesauce if you like a smooth applesauce or if you are wanting to make apple butter uh, and you want that smooth consistency to kind of get started with the apple butter. But this year, based on some things I had seen on YouTube, I gave it an old upgrade. And that is that I took the hand crank off, I put a half inch nut on the shaft and hooked up my drill. And whoo, boy, can you run some tomatoes through that puppy with that upgrade. And so I did that last night. And then I took that sauce that was left and put it in an ice chest with some ice. And this morning I went down expecting to see a lot of separation, the water kind of coming to the top. And guess what, folks? There was hardly any water separated out because so much water was released when I unthawed the tomatoes. So certainly a great win there. And so today I've been making two different things. I've been making seasoned tomato sauce, which we use kind of like a spaghetti sauce. And I have been making a product called red hot sauce, which is kind of like a condiment. It's kind of like a spicy ketchup that's got a sweetness to it. But then that heat kind of comes in at the end and kind of catches you. And uh, it's just very, very pleasant. And so that's what I have been doing today food preservation wise. Now we've been doing a lot of other things as well here on the homestead over the last couple of weeks. And one of the biggest one, uh, and one of the biggest things that we did is we took our lane flock to the auction. Again, if you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you will see that I kind of hacked together some cages uh, using some bird netting and some boxes and some zip ties because I, I didn't want to have to track cages down after the auction. And uh, they have a very limited supply of cages that you can put your birds in uh, at the auction barn. Um, and we were taking so many birds, I just felt like it would be better to do it that way. That worked out very, very good. But I do have some sad news to report. And that is that it ended up falling on my wife's shoulders to kind of sort out the birds because I was gone to the charcuterie intensive and my son was gone volunteering at a camp uh, last weekend. And so as my wife was going through and putting the birds uh, in the boxes, she held back the hen that she thought was sweet pea, except it was not sweet pea. And so unfortunately, sweet pea was sold at the auction. We tried to track her down this week 
And the people at the auction house were so accommodating and so helpful. But unfortunately, it seems that Sweet Pea is, well, Sweet Pea is gone. And it was a very, very sad day uh, for, for all of us. Um, I had asked my son to get Sweet Pea out before the, the birds went. And unfortunately, he was so distracted with going uh, away to the camp that he kind of lost track of that. And um, so unfortunately, Sweet Pea is no longer on the farm. And and uh, that was a, a very, very sad, sad situation. My son has handled it well. Of course, at first, he was very heartbroken, um, but uh, he's gotten past it. And uh, he appreciated my efforts in trying to track Sweet Pea down. But uh, unfortunately, it is what it is. And Sweet Pea is no longer a member of 3B Farm and Homestead. Another sad note is that Sonny, one of our barn cats, uh, disappeared on Wednesday. So when I went to feed the cats on Wednesday, it seemed like Sonny wasn't wasn't in great spirit, shall we say. And uh, when I went to feed them, he kind of went running down into the bushes and we have not seen him since. And as I was talking to my wife, it seems like when she went into the uh, into the garage to get feed for the chickens, uh, Sonny uh, ran in underneath her feet and uh, she inadvertently stepped on him. And so we're not sure if that caused injury to him, um, but he has not been back since Wednesday. And so we're not sure if he'll show back up or if Sonny is no more. So a couple of very, very sad notes here on the homestead this week. One final note is that yesterday I spent a bulk of the day. So I, I, I dug the potatoes in the morning and then in the afternoon, I spent the day doing one of my least favorite chores here on the, on the homestead. Now it's not my least favorite chore. You know, that is castrating pigs and that'll be coming up actually in the next couple of weeks, but I did some pig pen clean out. And one of the things that was so striking to me as I cleaned out that pig pen and when I say pig pen, we're talking, it's an open air area where we just kind of as a smaller area where we kind of sock wood chips to it throughout the year. I clean it out once a year, um, usually in the fall. Sometimes if things have gotten really bad during the winter, I'll clean it out in the spring, but usually we're able to kind of keep the wood chips going in, in it very, very well. And as I cleaned it out, I was struck by the lack of odor. Um, so that really is a good thing. It means that we have been doing a great job keeping on top of that situation. And I didn't think I was because at times I would get a little bit of an odor um, because of all of the wet that we have had this year, all of the rain. It's really been tough to stay on top of, uh, of that wood chip situation. And in fact, it's raining right now. It rained some yesterday. It, it just seems like, I think they said, Throughout the month of July, we did not have two consecutive days without rain. Um, so it was a very, very wet summer after a very dry spring. Um, but anyhow, uh, I was very, very happy with that. As I dug it out, I, I got a nice, big, huge pile of what will become black gold. We let it age. I don't really turn it much. I just let it sit there because I have so much of it. There's no need for me to really mess with it too much. Um, I'll get last year's stuff up to the garden in the spring, uh, and, uh, and everybody will be happy. But so that was yesterday's 
chore. So it has just been a busy, busy time here on the homestead. Um, we're getting food in the larder and um, animals getting ready to, to send them over the rainbow. Uh, we've got turkeys slated to go this week. And then next month, uh, we will have, not next month, I'm sorry, the month after that, the pigs will be going. And so really trying to draw things down uh, so that we're not carrying quite as much stock throughout the winter. All right, folks, that is what we've been up to here on 3B Farm and Homestead. I hope things are good wherever you are at. And now let's head on over to this week's Charting the Course. So on this week's Charting the Course, I am so excited to have back on the program, Jack Polner from the Mindful Homestead. Uh, Jack and Jackie and their daughter, Emma, are homesteaders over in New Hampshire, about two and a half hours uh, away from us. And not only did I attend a charcuterie intensive last weekend with Jack, but it was the first chance that I had to meet Jack and Jackie in person. Uh, This is something that's been a long time coming. We were supposed to get together back in March of 2020. And of course, COVID had other plans, but it was so great to meet them in person. And folks, it was like we had been lifelong friends. Uh, The conversation just flowed so easily. It was just such a joy to be able to spend time with them, uh, to get to know them better, to see the uh, mindful homestead in real life. And um, it was just an absolutely enjoyable weekend, packed full of great information. So with all of that said, Jack, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So this past weekend, you and I had a bit of an adventure, and we had the opportunity to uh, attend a charcuterie intensive course that was really a long time in coming. Um. It was scheduled for March, I think initially March of 2020. Yep, that sounds about right. And then COVID happened, and then they tentatively rescheduled. I think it was for October of 2020. And then obviously that didn't happen, and so we finally were able to make it happen. Yep, they didn't even bother to try for this spring. They just pushed it right out to this October. Yeah, and I mean, obviously it was disappointing in many, many regards, But probably for me, the biggest disappointment was that the plan was for me to crash with you and Jackie and Emma there on the Mindful Homestead. And so we kind of got delayed uh, in meeting each other in real life. Uh, But finally, it happened. (laughs) (laughs) And it it was awesome. Um, Before we even jump into the charcuterie thing, uh, I just wanted to publicly say to you and Jackie uh, and Emma, uh, thanks so much for putting up with me. And it was one of those situations that, you know, for me, obviously you and I and, and our buddy Don there from uh, Little Mountain Life, we chat just about every day. Yep. And so it certainly was like we had known each other for for forever. And it, yeah, it was time we were meeting in real life. Yeah. Jackie and I were talking about that. And, uh, you know, we kind of said, like, you know, I don't. I don't gravitate toward bad people, I guess, you know, I tend to, I tend to be pretty jovial and outgoing and, but you said it in your last podcast with, um, and I'm going to be terrible and forget the person's name. They live over in England, Carl, Yeah, Carl. Yeah. Your last podcast with Carl, you know, when you talk to a homesteader and you meet another homesteader, 
conversation just flows and things happen. It's like you're a kindred spirit. So it was, uh, you know, like when you got here, I mean, conversation was flowing and we were having a good time and it was like, we'd known each other for a long time. Yeah, it was, it was, it was just awesome. It was special. And I got to meet your mom and dad. Yep. And, you did. Uh, <laughs> they your, were visiting as well. Yeah. From the, uh, from the, what was it? 27 year old pickles or whatever it was. 20, yeah. 27 year old canned goods that we, I ate. Uh, if you haven't seen that video, go watch it. Cause it's fun. Yeah, definitely. So it was awesome. So anyhow, thank you guys so much. Um, so after uh, spending the evening together and, and crashing there at the, at the mindful homestead, we drove about an hour South uh, to Timberhaven farm and uh, Tim- Timberhaven farm is a, a farm in Massachusetts run by Seth Wright, who is also a member of the board of directors for the American Guinea hog association. And so it was great to meet him. And Meredith Lee is the uh, person who was putting on the course. She was our teacher, our guru. And for you and I, um, both, I think you had mentioned this uh, in your recent episode, and it certainly was the case for me. Before this class, uh, unfortunately, I had not heard of Meredith. Um, it was no. through this, this opportunity that I actually found out about her, and I'm so glad that I did. Yeah, it was kind of uh, last year. I mean, I know we had we had talked about um, doing this last year. And before that, I had not really had too much experience in the charcuterie world. And, you know, I, I looked up a few recipes, but she was someone that it, it just I hadn't run across her name before in the past. And after taking this course, it was pretty, pretty wild that I hadn't just because of how much knowledge it, 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 it showed that she had when she yeah. started talking about it. Absolutely. And it was just, you could see it. She knew more than just what she was telling us. Um, We would ask her questions about certain things and she would be like, oh yeah, over in this part of, you know, France, they do it this way. And in this part of Spain, they do it another way. And so just the breadth of her knowledge, the depth of her knowledge is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, it, it, it was, she had an answer for everything and not, you know, sometimes people say that in a bad way. But, uh, but anytime somebody came up with an idea and she just knew, she knew right either where it was already being done or she had thoughts as to how something like that might work and if it would work. Right. Or if it was a bad idea, Um, there were a couple of ideas that got floated that she was like, well, and she said in a very nice way, but you might not want to do it because of this, or, you know, you might want to think about that. Yeah, uh, for sure. And so it was, you know, certainly, um, I really, really enjoyed her teaching style. I enjoyed her knowledge and uh, another bonus from that. I I should have brought him in here with me. I didn't, Um, but we received both of her books. Um, And uh, so that was, that was uh, a great uh, bonus. Hang on. Hang on. Don't worry, Brian. I got you. All right. There we go. So if you're watching (laughs) this on YouTube, uh, we've got pure charcuterie and that one right there. Yep, the black one, and then the red book is the ethical meat handbook. So, um, yeah, and her story, we won't d- dive too much into Meredith's story because I don't want to spoil um, an upcoming interview that I have with her. Uh, very excited that she has uh, agreed to be on the show. I'm but actually really path, happy. I'm happy to hear is, that you got her. What's that? I'm happy to hear that you're going to be doing that. Yeah, it's, I, it's her path, her story about how she got into charcuterie is just very, very interesting. Um, 
And so I'm excited about, uh, about sharing that with, with everybody, but so back to the course, we got there on, uh, on Saturday, it was a two day intensive and we uh, arrived to an American Guinea hog that I believe they said it dressed out at about 95, hung at about 95 pounds. Was that it what was pretty, said? I mean, it was pretty small, pretty small by the standards I'm used to. I don't know. Is that average for Guinea hogs or was it a smaller one? I think it's that's a little bit on the smaller side, okay. but it it does depend on when you harvest them. Gotcha. So for me, at about eighteen months, I usually am hanging at about one hundred and twenty pounds. Gotcha. Um, this one was uh, processed at fourteen months. So there, you got four months. Yeah. Um, so it's probably right on the money, and probably a little head ahead of where mine usually are at that point. To be frank, so. Um, but definitely, uh, it was, it was a perfect hog for charcuterie. Um, it wasn't too fat, uh, but it certainly wasn't very lean. And I think you got to see kind of why American Guinea hog meat is favored for charcuterie. Yeah, it, it, it was kind of a wake up call. Cause I I've talked to you about Guinea hogs in the past and it's not something that, uh, I've, I don't want to say it's not something I haven't entertained raising here. Uh, it would definitely require some changes just for the viewers that are listeners that don't know. Uh, we raise Berkshire Duroc crosses here at our place, and it's definitely more of a lean pig. Uh, you can free feed them really if you want to. We choose not to, but they tend to put on more muscle than fat. And then really the last couple months when you're finishing them is when you, you I always say, put the corn to them and you really get that fat to puff up. But the guinea hog, it, it, after talking to Seth about how he raises them and what he feeds them, and seeing the fat that was on the animal, it's a great animal for, for charcuterie. I mean, the fat is really good. It's not super soft and melty. It stands up to being ground into sausages and salamis. Uh, and it had just the right amount of it. I mean, even for a pig that is known as a lard pig, there was still bacon there that had plenty of lean in it. Uh, the fat cap was nice, but it wasn't huge. It was a great pig. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it, you could definitely see that what uh, Seth's doing there is working. Um, his, yep. his feed regimen is, uh, is definitely spot on um, for, again, not too fatty, not too, too lean. You know, I think for our purposes, it was perfect. And so that the pig had already been um, dispatched. It had been scalded, scraped, and it had been cut in half. Uh, and it had hung about, um, I think, uh, a week. I think it was about a week. Said. Yeah. It was actually, it was, it was processed on my birthday, September 15th. Okay. So, and I, I think the day of the class was the 23rd. Yeah. Uh, no, the 20, 24th, 25th, the 25th, worst with, 25th. I'm the worst with dates. So yeah, yeah. you're 10 days from, yeah. from, which is longer than I would normally do pork, but he has a, uh, he's got a setup for it. It was able to keep it dry and, and the meat was great. Yeah, Definitely. Um, so we, we started with, uh, uh, two halves and the, the first day Meredith kind of jumped in and we, uh, we, um, after a, a kind of a time of, of introduction and one of the common themes when people were asked why they were taking the course, uh, was that uh, they wanted to learn how to do it so they didn't kill anybody. Uh, <laughs> and that's one of the things that's, it's very important with charcuterie when you're talking about dry aging things and so forth. The potentials for botulism uh, are, are, are there if you don't follow certain procedures. Um, 
but one of the things that I found, and I think you've probably run across this as well, when you get into the charcuterie realm and you start going down that rabbit hole is some people are very, very rigid about so many different things. And on one hand, certainly we want to make sure that we're doing things safely, but I really was encouraged by her approach to say, listen, if you follow these basic steps, you trust your senses, your, your, your smell, your taste, you're going to be okay. Yeah. I think it's, it's very similar to, to canning where not to say that you shouldn't, you know, you can play with recipes and things like that, but after you do it for a certain amount of time, you learn that there's certain things you can change up. Like if, you know, you're doing a high acid recipe, you know, you know that by and large, as long as you keep your pH below a certain level, things should be pretty safe. Um, same thing, you know, I, I do some, some fermentations and then I later can those fermentations. I know that after I test, you know, after I finish fermenting, if my pH is low enough, it can go right into the water bath canner and I'm not going to do anything that's going to kill anybody. I think with the addition of nitrates and nitrates, um, which, you know, was part of her presentation, she put it in, in a light that basically showed you, Hey, you can do this and you're not going to kill anybody. You might get sick if you eat something you shouldn't, but there's going to be indicators before you eat that piece of meat that you shouldn't have done what you did. Right. Yeah, definitely. And so after that initial discussion, we jumped right into breaking the pig down and it was the approach that we took for breaking the pig down was something that I had not seen before because we're so used to the American breaking things down into primals. But for for charcuterie purposes, there's really a, a different approach that we took. And that was something that was very interesting to me. Um, so we just for, for everybody to kind of um, understand what we're talking about, that is that we we boned basically the the um, we, we took the rib cage and yep. the spine out um, and ended up with almost this boneless with the exception of the shoulder and um and the uh ham ham thank you I'm i gotcha i want to say like the butt yeah <laughs> the ham no that's uh, the front the butt's up front yeah right that's that's the funny thing in the port in pork yeah. it's like the pork shoulder butt it's like wow this is weird um but uh yeah the ham part um it was a big huge piece of boneless meat Yep. And then we had that to work with and break it down even further. So that was very, very interesting to me. And even thinking about it, like we didn't necessarily do it when the half of the hog was on the table, but in the end, we ended up boning out the entire shoulder too, for the most mm -hmm. part, aside from, mm -hmm. from the, the shanks and the hocks, um, by and large, aside from the femur in, in the, in the ham, that pig was boneless by the time, you know, we were done with it. Right. And, you know, a lot of it, again, it's, there's so many different things you could do from a charcuterie perspective. And we learned so many different techniques. Um, a lot of times people might leave the ham whole and do a prosciutto, but that's mm -hmm. not the only thing you can do no. with that piece of meat. And so that was really, really interesting for me um, to, to really get a better understanding of what you can do with the different muscles um, what muscles lend themselves to dry curing, which ones are better for us to go ahead and grind and maybe turn into sausage. Yeah. And I think that's part of what, what's been lost throughout meat production. You know, it, we've seen charcuterie kind of, I don't want to say slide backwards, but you don't go into the grocery store and see a ton of charcuterie cuts aside from your odd salami. And, you know, if I can be frank about the American 
meat culture for a minute, you know, so much of our meat production is now based on productivity and, you know, processors, they'll get that, that pork half and they'll throw it up on the table with the bandsaw and they'll buzz that thing through. And two, you know, within 30 seconds, you'll have ribs, loins, belly, ham, shoulder, and uh, charcuterie, because of how slow it is, it, it carries through in the preparation. It's not just throwing a salami in your curing chamber and letting it go for four weeks, but it's looking at the pig itself as soon as it's on your table and saying, okay, how can I do this right? And, and Mm -hmm. taking a little bit more time, Mm -hmm. pulling everything out and and making it the best it could be before you even get to the charcuterie part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Almost letting the animal dictate what's going to, to, become of it. In fact, that was one of the things that she talked about was how in um, when they're making prosciutto, they'll look at the ham and they'll say, you know, is this, has there been a dislocation? If there's been a dislocation, mm. then they don't do prosciutto with it. Yep. Um, so there's certain, you know, or, you know, maybe how the, the, um, the ligaments have been formed. Um, there's yep. just certain things that they look at to say, okay, is this, is this piece of meat going to lend itself better to prosciutto or is it going to lend itself better to other types of, of products? Yeah, it definitely got me how, like, once we saw the inside of the animal and what it looked like, how she would point out, like, you know, on the, the hemorrhaging that went on it at the, you know, where the pig was stuck and bled, you know, she looked at that and said, oh, we could do this with that. However, because of the hemorrhaging that's there, that's going to go into our pate or that's going to go into a sausage grind. Um, it, it's not like a one size fits all solution at, at any point. And, you know, it, that was really, really interesting to see how it's, you're that much more in tune with the animal that you're about to process. Absolutely. So, uh, on day one, we also jumped into, I think probably what was one of your favorite things that we did was the mortadella. Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm an Italian boy. I grew up, uh, you know, I, I grew up at my parents owned an Italian restaurant in New Jersey, my, you know, my uncle owned an Italian restaurant, my great uncle owned it. I come from a long line of Italian restaurant families. So I'm very in tune with the, the Italian charcuteries, if you will, you know, your, your prosciuttos and your, your capicolas and all your gabagool, if you're a Sopranos fan. And, um, mortadella is one of those things where I've heard horror stories of, you know, not even just mortadella, but people trying to make hot dogs or bologna. And it just, it turns into this grainy, almost like meat sand consistency. So uh, that was something I was looking most forward to was, was once I heard we'd be making a mortadella, I was like ready to go. And for people who aren't familiar with what mortadella is, it's really, you refer to it as fancy bologna. It's fancy bologna. It's an Italian bologna and it's got whole peppercorns. It's typically got pistachios in it. And you'll sometimes see it with about quarter inch size uh, chunks of pork fat right in it. Um, it's, if you ever see it in the, in the deli cabinet at your, at your grocery store, it's usually a big round, you know, it looks like bologna, but it's big and round. And sometimes it'll have the pistachio, sometimes it won't, but it'll almost always have that fat in it. And so we started prepping that, uh, on Saturday and then we did finish that up on Sunday. So that pretty much, I think covered what we went over on, on, uh, Saturday, um, that I missed our homework too. Oh, okay. So yeah, so we were set with homework. Um, one of the things that we were going to do on Sunday was to do some fresh sausage. And so one of the things that Meredith uh, asked us to do um, was to come up with 
kind of some ideas as far as flavor profiles, things that we would like uh, to see and uh, come up with recipes and um, think about ratios. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that as we were going through the class, we we talked a lot about the correct ratios of salt um, and the correct ratios of liquid and, and, and so forth, fat and lean, depending on what you were trying to, um, trying to, to, to create. And so that was our homework for Saturday was to come up with, um, this idea of a, um, a recipe for, for sausage. And then on Sunday, when we got together, um, we were to kind of present those ideas. So uh, on Saturday evening, one of the other things, um, and I can't remember what it was called, but the, the, the uh, rolled up pork fat that we did in the tomato sauce. What's oh, that called? Kotika. Kotika. So Kotika. that was something that you had suggested and mentioned yep. and uh, volunteered to make. And uh, then we forgot to bring the skin home. Uh, we did with forget us. to bring the skin. But we were able to, um, and by we, you were able to <laughs> to uh, still make it happen. So I had actually brought some uh, tomatoes over for you um, because your tomato harvest um, had not gone so well this year. And um, so you actually made a fresh sauce yep. on Saturday evening. Um, and then we took it over on Sunday. And the and what is it, Kotika? Kotika, yeah, it's C-O-T-I-C-A. Um, it's got a couple couple different pronunciations depending where on Italy you are. But in a nutshell, what it is, uh, is you take all the fat and you buzz as much fat off the skin as possible. And you're left with just the raw pork skin that you've, you've scalded. You want to scald it. You don't want to burn the hair off of it. You want to make sure it's a scalded pork skin that's been scraped. And you roll it up with a little salt, a little pepper, uh, basil leaf if you've got it. And you tie it like a little mini brajol. Again, another Italian word for just rolled up meat. And you toss that in your pot of tomato sauce in the morning. And you just let that go all day. Um, keep it as low as possible, barely simmering. And the idea being that come dinner time, you've got these delicious little rolled up tubes of, of pig skin that have turned super, super soft and absorbed all that flavor from the tomato. Mm-hmm. The plus side to it, if you're not going to use the sauce that day, is I took that sauce and I made sure to bring it home with me. And when I set it up in the fridge, it actually solidified like a, like a bone broth, if you will, if you put it in the fridge and we had it on pasta that night. And it's one of the most delicious, uh, my mouth is watering. just thinking about it. It's one of the most delicious things you'll ever eat it is a tomato sauce that's had pork skin braised in it all day long. Mm, yeah. And it was, we had that as part of the feast on Sunday. It was phenomenal stuff. One of the other things I actually forgot, uh, back on Saturday that we did, was we actually broke up into teams and we did uh country pate yep. and we did um it was it was supposed to be liver pate it ended up being a few other things in there so i was on team country pate you were on team liver pate yep. so tell me a little bit about the process that you guys went through to make your liver pate so originally we were supposed to have uh like you said a, a liver pate and when we got to the, the liver that we had from this pig, uh, we realized it wasn't going to be enough to, to do a, a proper liver pate, a full recipe out of it. So we ended up procuring a couple of kidneys and a pork heart as well that we were able to grind up. And the process for the liver pate um, was essentially 
you mix your salt with your meat. Uh, I forget the exact ratios, but if you buy Meredith's book, they'll be right in there. I've already looked up and earmarked the recipe because I'm planning on doing it again. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of chicken livers coming this weekend from chicken processing. So we're going to try it with chicken livers. But the process is you grind it up into a very fine paste. Um, You go through, you know, your coarse, your medium, and then your fine, your fine dyes on your grinder. Uh, And then you add in essentially a binding agent. And in this case, we actually did a gluten-free binding agent. You can use flour and mix with a little bit of cream. Uh, But in this case, we did cornmeal because we had somebody that was, was gluten. I don't want to say intolerant. They couldn't have gluten. We'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. And um, so we did cornmeal and cream there. And we did a little bit of bourbon as well in that. Uh, And then we essentially poured it into a, poured it into our forms. Maple uh, bourbon, by the way. What's that? Maple Maple bourbon. Maple bourbon. Yep. Maple (laughs) bourbon went in there. And uh, we poured it into our forms. Um, They were cooked in a water bath. Um, I believe it was, I believe it was 300 degrees with water halfway up the side. And then, uh, and then they were chilled. And that was the basic process there. Again, I won't do divulge all the details. You can find them in Meredith's book, but it, but it, uh, it came out pretty good. I mean, I like liver. I don't know how you felt about it. Yeah. For me, I didn't care for that too much. Um, but I wasn't quite sure I would going into it because there's only been a few liver pates that I've, I've enjoyed, but it was more of a liver mousse than it was, um, uh, you know, a, a strict pate. And uh, so I didn't care for that as much. Now I was on team country pate Um, country pate was something I had never heard of before. Um, And in in essence, what it is, is you take things like hemorrhage, you take things um, like the, the glands, the the salivary glands from the jowls, um, the mammary glands from the belly um, that can go in there. Um, A little of this, a little of that with some fat and uh, some, I think we had celery and onion um, yep. went into it. Um, and again, uh, you know, we, we, we mixed it by hand until we had a good bind and uh, we baked it in a meatloaf pan. Basically it was like, it was like a, a meatloaf. Yep. Um, and to be frank with you, it was, I don't want to say it was my favorite thing because I think the um, you had a little bit of liver in there too, right? Oh yes, that's right. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. There was, I think, um, uh, I don't remember four ounces of liver or something. It was a very minimal amount of liver. Uh, and, uh, but anyhow, so then you, you kind of cut it in, in slices and serve it cold. And so we had that again, as part of our feast on Sunday. And it was one of my favorite things. It was <laughs> the thing that really surprised me the most yeah. that I, I enjoyed. Yep. Um, and one of the other things that we did start on, um, that we started on Saturday and then it was finished up on Sunday was head cheese. Yes. Um, so that's where the head and um, I think the, some of the hooves went in and I don't remember what trotters, else yep. put in, the trotters went in um, and uh, for the collagen. And so head cheese is really bits from the head um, that are cooked down with spices and so forth, some other lean. Um, and then it's suspended um, in this gelatin, uh, the, the, that, that cooks out of the head and out of the trotters. Um, and that was, I would say that was my least favorite dish. And when we, <laughs> when we divided stuff up, wouldn't you know it? I got head cheese to bring home. So I, Oh, did you cheese. see, I didn't I get did. any head cheese. So yeah, but we should have talked cause I got country pate, which was delicious. I did eat it, 
But I, I would have definitely taken head cheese home. Yeah, definitely. The head cheese was not high on my list of favorite things, but I'm going to eat it because, you know, you want you want to honor the animal. And you uh, get Bo- uh, Bonnie and Brian Jay to try it, too. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think that's going to happen, but um, <laughs> well, who knows? So so that was Saturday. So on Sunday, we, we uh, came back um, and we um, went into making we, we, the discussion about the sausage. So we were going through our homework talked about the different flavor profiles. Um, and it was very interesting to see what people came up with. There were some areas of commonality. Um, a lot of people like me took the easy route and went with kind of like a tomato basil type, like take on, on uh, sausage. I won't, say, I won't say easy route. What I'll say is you went, you went the pleasing route. Again, having that restaurant background, it's, it's very straightforward to say this is a tomato basil sausage. People like it. Nobody's scared of it. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely um, something that you know is going to work. Those flavor yeah. profiles are just tomato basil. Solid. It's just, a, it's a, it's an Italian comfort food. It, yep. it goes together like, um, you know, beer and pizza, you know, yep. whatever. Um it's just something that you know pairs well. Now you chose to go a, a little bit of a different route. Tell tell us a little bit about what you came up with. Well, the, the quick story is that I had in my head as soon as I was told we were going to have to come up with a recipe, I went to blueberry maple um, because I've done a blueberry maple sausage a bunch in the past. It's um it's what we grow. We grow blueberries here on the property. We top our own maple trees and make maple syrup. And in closing of day one, Meredith made a comment uh, a little bit against maple. She was like, she made like, oh, and if you bring maple sausage, blah, 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 this and that. So, um, so I said, all right, scratch the maple idea. And when we got back while we were making that tomato sauce, I popped open the, the spice pantry and I basically went a little off the rails and I came up with a, uh, oh, what, what it was a, Szechuan peppercorn and Dobinjiang sausage, where Szechuan peppercorn, uh, sometimes they're known as pink peppercorns. Not really, though. They're, they're a little bit different than pink peppercorns. It, it's, a, it's a shell husk from, from Southwest China, and it has a slight spice to it, but it also numbs your mouth. And I think I gave you one when I was toasting them up mm-hmm. that night. And I said, here, nibble on this. And the face you made was one of pure consternation as you tried to figure out if you liked it or hated it, and then it transitioned into, well, I can't feel anything anyway anymore, so I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, and then the the second primary ingredient there was was Dubinjiang, which and I'm I apologize to anyone who speaks Chinese and I'm butchering the pro, the the pronunciation of that, but it is a fermented black bean and chili paste used mm-hmm. also again very heavily in in southwestern Chinese cooking. And those two flavor ingredients, along with the salt and a little bit of white pepper um, and some in my head, I didn't write it down, but also a little bit of uh, green onion. Those were my primary flavor components of the sausage. And it was kind of neat because it, I drew inspiration from a, from a dish called Mapu Tofu, which is a ground pork stir fry that uses those as their primary ingredients. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it down and, and that's what I went with the next day. I just threw it out there. So the, the interesting thing was, as, as we went around, there were kind of these commonalities and it really ended up breaking down into kind of the savory and the sweet kind of take on sausage. 
And so in, in the end, that's what we ended up doing was dividing up into team savory and team sweet. Yep. And the, and then, and then team mortadella, which went ahead and finished the mortadella um, for the day. And so the, the, the very interesting thing was, is there was another lady that was there as a, a part of the course who um, she makes a lot of kimchi. Yep. And uh, so we went ahead and kind of ran with your idea um, and added in a little bit of her kimchi juice and a little bit of the, uh, um, was it gochu? Uh, yep. Go, um, goju peppers. Goju peppers. Yep. And um, folks, I, I, I don't want to twist my arm out of the socket, patting ourselves on the back too, too bad, but it was literally one of the best sausages I have ever had in my it life. It worked really well. It, it did. was delicious. It wasn't yep. too over the top spicy, but it was just, it, it was, it was primo. It was yeah. so good. It's a recipe. I've got, I've got it written down. It's not going anywhere. It's going to get made again. Yeah. And I um, actually took a picture of it and brought it home too, because uh, I was like, yeah, definitely. This is something that uh, needs to happen again. Um, so we went ahead and made that and that was our lunch for the day. And then, uh, team, uh, sweet sausage, um, they went also ahead and knocked it out of the park. Yeah. They made an apple, uh, cheese, um, sausage that they used, uh, an apple cider syrup yep. in it with some sauteed onions and garlic. And then, um, a lady from Chase Hill Farm, which is the farm, really the backside of Timber Creek Farm. So it's a neighbor to Seth. Um, they, she brought this cheese called Herdsman. That was, I, I without a doubt, of one it. of the best cheeses I've yeah. ever had in my life. Yep. Um, it, it was just absolutely amazing. In fact, I stopped by their farm stand on the way home. I got some of that. Um, they sold, they, they sell the um, apple cider syrup. So I picked up a bottle of oh, that. Oh, I didn't know that was them from them too. Yeah. And then oh. I picked up a bottle of uh, a gallon of the raw milk and I brought that home. So I've been enjoying that this week. Um, but so they put all of that together in a sausage and they actually, we end up having it two different ways for our feast. They um, took some of it and they put it in a pastry and they uh, cooked it in the smoker and the egg in a cast yep. iron skillet. And then some of it, they actually did go ahead and link up and fried up. And it was delicious both ways. It yeah. was phenomenal. That was something I had never thought to take like a bulk sausage and wrap it in a pie crust and then essentially cook it in a large cast iron. Uh, they didn't put a ton of smoke on it, which was nice. It was mostly over regular charcoal. But, but what ended up happening was the fat rendered out of it and it essentially fried the pie crust. It was... Oh. It would oh. knock your socks off good. Oh, it was. It was. Oh, it was so good. It was so, so good. Yeah. So we uh, then finished out the day. Um, we talked some about the whole muscle curing. Um, and uh, trying to remember what else we did. Uh, we went ahead and poached the mortadella. Yep. Um, so we poached that. And what else? We talked about missing? Koji. Oh, yeah. We talked a ton about Koji. Which is again, a wild thing that I'm not even sure uh, for the, for the listeners out there and the viewers that aren't familiar again, Koji is you're familiar with like a salami and the white mold that forms on the outside of a salami. Koji is kind of the, the East Asian take on that. It's used a lot in Chinese culture, a lot in Japanese culture. It's actually the, the culture that gives us sake and plum wine and a lot of mm -hmm. these 
these Asian wines uh, that that come out of the, the region. And it is it is a wormhole that mm. I don't know if I will ever be fully ready to jump down and into because once you get into it, everyone I've ever met that's that's talked about it, including everyone at the at the charcuterie intensive are super passionate about it. And, mm. and it's, if, if you're into it, I invite anybody or if you're into learning about it, I invite everybody to go look it up. I don't know if I'll ever be able to speak entirely to it because it, it may be over my head at this point. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's one of those things that I think it's a rabbit hole that you could go down deep uh, and, and maybe never even come up out of. But uh, yeah, it certainly was very, very interesting conversation about that. And you brought up another term that I, I, I almost forgot about. That's salami. How in the world can oh, I forget about? I've got one hanging salami? in the basement right now. So yeah. Um, so we did go ahead and uh, make some salami and uh, then stuffed it and uh, learned about how to make sure that you prick it to get all of the air bubbles out of it and make yep. sure that it's, it's stuffed very firmly um, because air bubbles creates an aerobic uh, environment and you want yep. an anaerobic environment. Um, and so um, we learned about that. And then also uh, Meredith brought um, with her the inoculating uh, bacteria, both for the inside of the salami, as well as the outside of the salami. So it's kind yep. of those good cultures that kickstart um, the process and make sure that the meat ferments properly. Um, and then the outside, what you're doing is you're putting basically penicillin on the outside yep. of the, the salami, which creates an environment where the bad bacteria is outcompeted by good bacteria. Yep. And uh, so hopefully you'll be seeing some nice white mold growing on the outside of your salami. If we did everything correctly, and if you're doing everything correctly, um, that should happen. So that was one of the things that at our feast, certainly we could not enjoy everything that we prepared because there are certain things like pancetta and bacon and, um, and salami, um, and cool. Well, yeah. A lot of the, the, the Lomo, like the long cured, the slow cured muscles, yeah. um, the, the Copa, all that stuff. There, there's a lot of, to put it in perspective, what ended up happening was we made a lot of stuff and we ate a lot of stuff but everything got divvied up amongst everybody who came yep. and we all brought projects home. So yeah. like right now in my basement, I have a salami hanging mm -hmm. in a makeshift fermentation chamber that mm -hmm. I had all the parts for kicking around and I just kind of hacked it together. And, mm -hmm. and she talks about that in her book. Um, it's something mm -hmm. you guys, it, again, if you're interested in this at all, I can't recommend enough picking up the books because they make it easy for you when they talk about it in layman's terms. Like I looked at this grow tent that I had that we start our seedlings in. And I said, Oh, well, if I, I finagle things a little bit and, and make it work, that could be a fermentation chamber. Mm -hmm. So I took my seedling heating mats. I put them in the bottom. I had a small little humidifier. I put that in there as well. I hooked up an outside temperature sensor that I have that feeds back to my fridge. And rather than stick it outside, I stuck it in the fermentation chamber and I can look at my refrigerator now and see my temperature and humidity and I can adjust things as I need to mm -hmm. and eventually hopefully find an equilibrium. Right now, humidity is great. I'm a little on the cool side. I'm around 64 degrees that you want 65 to 70 for yep. fermentation. Yep, 65 to 70. So yep. yeah, definitely um, a lot of great information in those books on how to do things on a home scale. And um, so I will make sure that I put links to those books uh, in the show notes um, if you're interested in checking those out. Um, 
definitely, as Jack said, highly recommend those. So the the weekend culminated in a feast. Um, and uh, you know, definitely check out my Instagram, check out Jack's Instagram. We both put up pictures uh, of the feast. It was beautiful, but it was very, very tasty. And it was, you know, there were some things that I I liked. There were some things that I didn't like, you know, the head cheese certainly was not high on my list <laughs> not of your favorite jam. things. Uh, the, the pate wasn't high on my list of favorite things, but that country pate that'll eat all day yep. long. That um, the, the, the um, pie crust with the uh, sausage, the sausage and the pie crust, that yep. was phenomenal. I guess you could call it, a, if you were feeling French, you can call it a sausage en croute. Uh, uh, sausage en croute, yes. <laughs> Let's get fancy oh, with it. Well, well, we'll get fancy here. Pinkies up. Um, we also did... Um, what, what is it in the, in the fat? Um, it's uh, oh, confit, 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 oh. and reacts. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh yeah. boy, oh, there's pictures that of that so too on the Instagram. It, there's if oh. there was anything, you know, there's if there was a main takeaway from the weekend, it was just that I felt even more in love with pigs than I already was. Oh, yes, you yes. know, there's nothing wrong with a big, thick cut pork chop on the grill or or a ham or a slow cooked pork shoulder. But man, let me tell you, making a, a, a pork riettes or, oh, or, yeah. or or anything else you could do with a pig, like it just, it took it way down the line. Oh yeah, absolutely. Huge rabbit hole you can go down, but man, I tell you, it's a tasty rabbit hole to go down. Oh yeah. And you're, uh, you're never complaining about it at the oh, end. Not at all. Right. Except for the head cheese. Except for the head cheese. You need to stop uh, complaining about the head cheese. It was delicious. Yeah, yeah. You just got that New York palate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Uh, but And then the other thing that was really fun, too, is that people brought um, different things to complement it. Um, yep. So you brought your hot pepper jelly. I brought some pickles and some cowboy candy and oh, some the cowboy of my candy. Um, uh, pepper relish. Um, some, uh, another lady brought some duck riette. You brought your duck prosciutto. Yep. Um, and so there was just a lot of, obviously that we had, um, trying to think, uh, some, uh, quick pickles that Meredith had brought. Yep. Um, you brought some Jardinet that you had done up. And, uh, so there was just a lot of things to really compliment it. So we really had this full on a, a huge charcuterie board with nuts and crackers and, um, it was just amazing. It was very Instagrammable for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Let me say this. Brian just glossed over it. And Brian, be quiet for a second. I'm going to talk to all your listeners. Brian glossed over his pickles and his pepper relish. And he's talked about some canning stuff in the past on the podcast. Y'all need to be hitting Brian up for his canning recipes more frequently because he glosses over it. He talked a little bit in a previous episode about it. His tongue pickles, his pepper relish, the cowboy candy we cracked open the other day. The stuff is delicious. And I don't think he he gives himself enough credit and shares as much as that stuff. So definitely hit him up and make him start sharing the stuff because it's worth it. it. It definitely needs to be shared. Well, well thank you, man. I appreciate that. It, it's I, I love doing it, but I, I also... Uh, you know, when people appreciate it, it, it certainly, it, that means a lot. So thank you very much. Um, yeah, yeah we've been, we had, been crushing uh, the stuff you brought. We, we enjoyed some of the, uh, cause I brought you over, uh, some of the, um, pepper relish for, uh, yep. we had some of that, uh, with uh, sausage peppers and onions, um, on, uh, 
on Saturday evening. And uh, so thank you. Thank you for the dinner. And I'm glad you guys enjoyed the, the pepper relish. So, um, so, you know, kind of, uh, we've gone long on this, but I mean, it, there was just so much to unpack here um, with regards to, to the, the weekend. It was just phenomenal. I mean, I came away super inspired. Um, and one of the, one of the other things we didn't even talk about is that there was a giveaway of an LEM uh, grinder and sausage stuffer. So people went went away with uh, you know some great gifts besides the fact that we we brought home pork and and and, uh, and then made great friendships um, because it was just such a great group of people um, that uh, that that were there. Um, so for you, kind of, what's your takeaways? My biggest takeaway was that uh, I mean, one I got the bind down on fresh sausage because that was something that was a major sticking point for me and that I really wanted to get out of the course. Um, but the biggest thing for me was that there's just a super accessible world of charcuterie out there where, you know, even if you're not into curing whole muscles or making salamis and going for those long things, you've got pates, you've got fresh sausage, you've got all this stuff that mortadella, you know, as involved as the process is, there's no long-term curing or special equipment really that you need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get away with, you know, stuffing your mortadella as long as you have a meat grinder. And as long as you have a, a sausage stuffer, the same things are required for mortadella as they are for regular fresh sausage. You can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, my biggest takeaway was just that it's way more accessible than I think a lot of people give it credit for. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, definitely. I, I highly recommend, um, if you have the opportunity to go to one of these, do it. Um, I, I have no regrets. I felt like it was money well spent. It was time well spent. Um, very, very inspirational and, you know, definitely Meredith is somebody who is, is super, super knowledgeable and definitely looking forward to having her here, um, on the podcast here in the next, uh, couple of weeks. Um, and so, yeah, any other final thoughts you'd like to leave with us before we, uh, close out? No, I, I just, again, I think it's important that if you have the opportunity to attend something like just do it, because these are, these are our techniques from an old world that are now, they're essentially dying. We've Mm -hmm. moved into production pork and fast food. And these are slow food techniques that, you know, folks like you, me and everyone else, the more people that have this knowledge, the more people can learn that knowledge, um, yeah. whether it's passed on directly through a class like this or sitting down with Emma when she's old enough and teaching her, this is how we make a salami. This is how we make a copa. This is how we do, you know, anything like that. Absolutely. Um, it's yeah, important. It, yeah. 100%. And that's one of the things that Meredith has been very open um, about. And she really struggles with the fact that she's got this knowledge, but she, she feels very, un, she feels very uncomfortable in pay, you know, having people pay for a course when she feels like this knowledge is, is, is free to share. And, and yet I feel very, very strongly that she is doing such an incredible service by pushing forward these techniques and, and teaching these, these uh, techniques. She, she's, there, there's no greater honor she can give to the, to the, to the people of the past than what she's doing by, by passing this on and, and igniting a passion in other people like you and I to carry on these traditions. Yeah. If, if, if it comes down to it, don't look at it as, as paying somebody $400 to, to teach you these things or whatever the course costs in the future. I don't know if it's going to go up, down, don't look at it as paying somebody to teach you these things. 
look at it in investing in these things for the future that not only you're gaining the knowledge, but that knowledge will be able to be passed on to somebody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, before we go, where can people find uh, you? As always, uh, just hop on Google, the good old Google machine, punch in the Mindful Homestead. You'll see our our Instagram, our Facebook, our YouTube, our website will probably pop up too. I think I've done the, the right proper search engine optimization there to get it to show up now. But uh, yeah, just Google search the Mindful Homestead pop up. Uh, obviously, YouTube is where we're most active, but you'll also see our Instagram and Facebook as well. Absolutely. And uh, if you head on over to uh, his YouTube channel, um, check out his latest video about the charcuterie class. You might see yours truly in that video. So you're in there somewhere, I think. I I think somewhere. (laughs) All right, Jack. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. As always, uh, great chatting with you. And thanks so much for uh, being a great host this weekend. It was such a joy to meet you in real life. Brian, thanks for having me on. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. It was such a great privilege to uh, spend the weekend with Jack and to spend the weekend uh, learning from Meredith Lee. Such great knowledge and such a great teacher. Really, really enjoyed it. Learned so much and connected with so many wonderful people. Um, the people that we we got to meet, it was just wonderful. I mean, just so many great people took part in the uh, in the charcuterie intensive. The uh, two books that Jack uh, showed on camera that we talked about from Meredith, I will have links to those in the show notes. So if you are interested in Meredith's books, I highly recommend them. Um, If you are a beginning, what's the word charcuterie? I don't know. I'll have to ask Meredith what it is. But if you are getting started in charcuterie, uh, definitely I would recommend you check those books out. And if you can get into a class taught by Meredith, I know she does online classes. And if that's all you can get, I would highly recommend those. But uh, if you can get in a real live class, there's just something about that in-person learning that is so awesome. So definitely check that out. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for stopping by. Brian can be reached by emailing him at brian at thehomesteadjourney.net or by contacting him via our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support this podcast, we invite you to become a member of the Supporting Listeners Program. For $10 a month or $100 per year, you will receive access to a community of like-minded individuals via a private Facebook group, at least one monthly live Q&A with Brian, the opportunity to participate in live recordings of the podcast, access to an ever-expanding library of helpful homesteading content, and so much more. Head on over to support.thehomesteadjourney.net for more information and to sign up today. As always, the music on this episode was provided by audionautics.com. So a big shout out to them. And until next time, everybody, keep up the good work.